Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome, and thanks for tuning in. I just spoke with Nick Susanis about a book I'm really excited about, both as a reader and also as a teacher, and this is a book called Unflattening. It was produced by Harvard University Press in 2015, and it's a book that takes us into and creatively explores what it is to be in, understand, um, and be created by, and also create our world, and how we understand the relationship between... I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome, and thanks for tuning in. I just spoke with Nick Susanis about a book I'm really excited about, both as a reader and also as a teacher, and this is a book called Unflattening. It was produced by Harvard University Press in 2015, and it's a book that takes us into and creatively explores what it is to be in, understand, um, and be created by, and also create our world, and how we understand the relationship between image and text, and the power of observation, collaborative observation, multiple um, vantage points that lead to new kinds of observation in the process of being in the world, making in the world, and understanding the world, and um, trying to come up with ways to do all of those things in a fresh creative and imaginative kind of way. It's a really amazing book visually as well as conceptually. And among the things that we talked about um, that you'll hear in the moments to come are not just the kinds of points that are coming up in individual chapters, but also the kind of work that individual pages um, are doing. And I really, really recommend getting your hands on a copy of the book so that you can experience it um, as well as hearing about it. It's amazing um, to read, and it's also going to be really, really useful to teach with for any of us who teach with the themes of observation, text and image, storytelling, creativity, etc. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation to come, and I hope you enjoy the book. I'm here today to talk with Nick Susanis about his really awesome new book, Unflattening. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, Nick, and thanks not only for making time to talk with me today, but also for writing an amazing book. Um, So welcome and thank you and congratulations. Well, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. (laughs) So Nick, can you start us off by saying a little bit about how you came to work in and on comics? What brought you to that medium in particular? Yeah, I mean, it's a, sort of a lifelong answer. Um, I, I was a, I have a much older brother who read comics to me when I was little. And um, I think I just kept reading them and kept making them throughout high school. Um, I printed my own comic, who uh, the character makes his appearance in the book. Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll say my schooling, uh, comics sort of faded into the background because I thought I was supposed to do serious things. And comics weren't necessarily taken that way so um i studied mathematics and i studied a lot of other things um 
but I kept making comics in the background. And when I was coming back to doctoral school, I had done some comics, uh, educational comics. And um, I said, you know, this is the kind of work I want to do. And this is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of impact I think I can have crossing academia and uh, a more general public. Um, and so, you know, I, I came to Columbia and I said, this is the kind of work I want to do. And, and, and honestly, so I came as a comics maker. It didn't occur to me that there was uh, larger ramifications for doing comics, uh, in academia, but, um, just seemed like this was the best way I could do the kind of work I wanted to do as a longtime maker. So there are pretty profound ramifications to the book that we're talking about, right? This is a book that is focused on the theme of unflattening. And we'll talk in detail um, in the hour to come about what that means and how that means and what the implications of that are and could be. Um, But broadly speaking, this is a book that's very much making methodological, conceptual, um, philosophical, what have you, contributions to how we think and how we think about making and being in the world. So what brought you to this particular theme? How did you come to not just the theme of flatness and unflattening, but the decision to make uh, a kind of coherent um, total object of this size and magnitude about this theme? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, coming into it, uh, coming into school, I just had the idea that, well, you know, why not do it in comics? And didn't, like I said, it didn't occur to me that it was much of a big deal. But as I got into it, I realized I really had to make the argument for itself. Um, I had to, I, you know, I had to demonstrate that this could be done and I had to show it being done. And, and I feel like, I mean, in some sense, I don't feel like I said a lot of new things. I mean, we've, we've had conversations about visual thinking in education and multimodality and stuff like that for a long time, but we tend they tend to still come through as textual arguments. Um, and so for me, it was really important that the argument embody be embodied in the work. Um, and I think one thing that came out uh, this was somewhere in the middle of my sort of proposal time. Um, I, I know I had some colleagues who, who suggested, you know, maybe you should hedge. You should write this piece that says, you know, that sort of explains why you're doing it in comics. And, and that, that moment really stands out for me. And it really struck me like, no, absolutely. If you have to like hedge to say why you're doing this thing, then, uh, then you're, then you're, you're basically saying that this isn't, can't stand on its own. This isn't real thinking. And, and I really believed in, I believed in what visual thinking and I believed in what comics could do. Um, so I, you know, I just sort of took that on and, and made the piece more about itself than I think I'd originally had in mind. Awesome. And, and that actually comes out as an explicit theme um, midway into the book, right? So we'll yeah. talk about that, the sort of um, the ways of thinking about the relationships and contrasts between verbal language and visual language and talking about versus um, embodying, you know, the, the thing itself. Yeah. So this did start out as a dissertation project. So let's just spend a few minutes um, talking about that. Um, and I'd love you to, for you to talk about kind of any part of that that you feel is particularly interesting and maybe specifically um, for listeners who might be either interested in exploring dissertation projects that don't take the form of a traditional sort of verbal language, um, you know, sort of a book argument thing, right? Um, so were there any particular challenges, right? Or what were the, what was the nature perhaps of the particular challenges that you experienced in writing this in the form and sort of making this in the form of a comic, if any, and can you talk about the transition or transformation again, if any, um, from dissertation to book? Yeah. Um, I think the, the first question, it's kind of a, a less exciting answer than people are hoping for. Um, I think because I was a comics maker and, and uh, the, my committee, for whatever reason, was excited about that, mm-hmm. um, I think it, there was a lot less pushback than I think uh, had to be, was ex- than, than people expect there was. Um, I, I did, I was very conscious that I was teaching my audience how these things worked and that, as we've talked about, is really in the, the document itself. So, uh, I mean, I, I think in, in some sense... 
possibly because I was doing it in a form that very few people knew what I was doing um, or how I was doing it, that, that I was given a little more free reign than I might otherwise have been given. Um, but didn't, didn't have that many constraints on it in terms of, uh, you know, I had to, I had to keep the margins. I had to have one by one and a half by (laughs) one by one margins. Um, but, um, but I think once the, they accepted that this was going to be in comics, it was like, let's see where you go with it. Um, and which I'm very grateful for. Um, but, but like I said, it still is very conscious of making it's, it's trying to demonstrate why it should be done while I'm doing it. Um, so I don't know. I think I sort of took that burden on myself, but didn't didn't have it pushed on me. Uh, to your other question, um, the, you know, the the thing was finished last summer, um, and I came up and sat with my editor Sharmila Sen at, at Harvard, and really had a wonderful time um, just going through it all. And I, the, the bulk of what we changed, um, we we cut out text. We made it a lot tighter, and there was a lot of things that you just because you're sort of inventing how to do um, citations and, and caption to caption. We really, we made it a lot cleaner and because, it, you know, yeah, just I was trying to figure out how I was going to do this and there wasn't any models to follow. Um, but the, for the majority, you know, if you read the dissertation version and you read the, the book version, there aren't, you know, I know the differences, but I think uh, someone else might not. So um, one of the things that actually immediately comes um, to my mind from hearing you talk about that process, just having gone through um, a few years ago the process of, of doing a, a, an academic book with HUP, with Harvard University Press, is those manuscripts often go out to reviewers, right? So did, mm-hmm. did your manuscript go through that process? And if so, did you specifically request that one of the reviewers uh, worked in um, comics or worked in uh, this kind of medium? Um. Yeah. It, yes, to both of those things. Um, it did go to reviewers, um, and and one of them was deaf. Both were versed in comics, and one was a maker. Um, and a, yeah, and they they had good feedback. So that was that was pretty early on, and yeah. So they had feedback, which did we took into account when we were thinking of the, the edits. Um, so yes, yes. Awesome. So so let's get into it, right? Let's get okay. into the book itself. And I'll just mention um, at the outset, um, before we get started with that, and, and we may come back to this as well, that this is a book that even though we're going to talk about um, it as a product of you know research and as something that we're experiencing as readers and writers, this is also an amazing volume for teaching. Um, so it, this might come up in our conversation, but if not, I just want to put that right out there for listeners right at the beginning is there's all already a site, right, devoted to teaching with the book um, that you can find online. So this is a book that's not only going to be, I think, for me, super exciting to talk about conceptually and as an object, but also something that's really, really going to be useful in all kinds of contexts for those of us who teach um, all kinds of courses that have anything to do with image, thinking, um, conceptual use of text and, and visuality and stuff. Yeah. So the book explores what's referred to in the first chapter as flatness of sight. So let's start out, since that really is going to lay the foundation of everything to come, let's talk about that. Um, So can you maybe start us off by opening up that notion? What for you is flatness of sight and what's important enough about that um, to really kind of launch us into this book long exploration? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think this work is very much, probably all my work is very much motivated by uh, the observation that I think, you know, humans are really amazingly capable, creative creatures. And, and I'm always thrilled in reflecting on that. But I also think at the same time, uh, in some sense, we're not, we're not always able to, to explore that to its fullest. Um, you know, I think so, and and I feel very much that you know, education for all its for all its help in fostering uh, us opening up also can be a form of flatness. It can be a way of limiting how we think. And I think so. I have this like great excitement about what what people are and what they can be, and also this great sadness about uh, about us when we're not able to be. Um, 
so I think that really motivates the work, and that's what this you know this chapter is very specifically, even though it never says the word education in schooling and institutions. It's very much about that sort of divide, but or, or dichotomy, or something like that between you know how do we become who we can be, and and what are these forces that stop us, even even when those forces are sort of intended to help us. Um, so I, I think that's the start of it. Now that sadness very much comes across visually in the figuration of sleepwalking, marching figures with their heads down. That really starts us off um, and continues um, really throughout the book, but definitely is a major visual touchstone in this chapter. In the visual notes at the end of the book, which I totally love and just want to call out for listeners, um, you mentioned that these figures were also featured in a public art billboard that you had installed in Detroit. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's talk about those figures. What's um, what's so important for you about that particular kind of figuration in embodying um, this sadness and this flatness that we've been talking about? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. They came, they did come to me much earlier in this piece in Detroit that had a lot to do with um, industrial processes and, and car culture, especially coming from Detroit um, and just sort of, you know, being pushed into rows and, you know, that I, you know, I mean, it's been done in lots of things, but, um, but, but I think it came from that, that sort of sadness of like being in lockstep and, and then it was more influenced. I think I talk about in the notes, uh, I, my dad had gone back to, he's a physics teacher and a very Dewey and sort of active physics teacher had gone back and taught in a post-retirement in a school that, um, that, that, were the physics class he took over, they'd been using worksheets for the, all the time doing it. And, you know, this was a very hands-on person coming in there. And that sort of conflict between, you know, like exploring the world and filling in blanks and thinking about students walking down the hallways with, you know, test prep books weighing them down. And so, you know, all these figures are sort of uh, hands behind their back. They're weighed down. Um, I think I read some descriptions of classrooms or, or hall hall policies where, students had to keep their hands behind their back while they were in the hallway. Um, so I think there, you know, it was both feelings I had and then things I was reading about education settings that influence the imagery, even though it stays in metaphorical territory. And I think um, it's really great that you've already brought up your father into this because this actually is something that's really fascinating and I think really important about the kind of work that the book does. So seeing together, right, collaborative seeing, um, seeing with, Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, is a way of breaking out of this flatness and opening up new perceptive possibilities. This is very much a theme of the book. And one of the wonderful things about the book is you're really embodying this in the way that your your parents, uh, there's a dog, there's a wife, there's the the feet of a baby, your brother come up throughout the book as touchstones. And so um, you mention your father a lot right throughout the book and in the notes. And also um, there's a pretty strong strong engagement with physics and astronomy throughout mm-hmm. the book. Um, so maybe could you speak a little bit to that, um, the sort of how you see your incorporation of these other um, people, um, beings in your life that have influenced what's happening here? And I, and for you, what's, what's important for us to understand about that methodologically? Yeah, you know, I, and I don't think that's something I can I thought out very carefully going into it. Um, And I I think there is a turn in academia to incorporate more of those sort of the personal reflection within this kind of work. Um, For me, you know, because it's not, it's not, I'm not in it in any visit. I mean, I I guess I show up in one page or something, but I'm not in it in a sort of visible narrator and, um, and it's not my story, but yet my personal stories that seemed, they seem like ways they they both generated ideas for me, but they were ways to bring this from sort of abstract philosophical stuff that I tend to stay in to something very real and and very true to my own life, which I think, uh, I mean, at least the responses are that that's also very true to people reading it. I mean, the different experiences, but I think they can relate to that kind of reality. I mean, I think there's a way that the book is arguing, at least in, in my experience as a reader, for the ways that juxtaposition and juxtaposition sometimes of seemingly unlike 
um, or dissimilar things creates meaning and creates new ways of seeing. And I think the more um, that's really becoming a theme, I think, across the humanities, and perhaps this has something to do with that, right? There's this juxtaposition of the you know, philosopher and the personal and the baby feet and the dog right. and Calvino that I think really embodies in practice and as a kind of methodological contribution what some of us um, talk about in theory in a way that I think um, is really beautiful here. Thanks. I mean, I think, I mean, in one sense, uh, that's just how I I think I tend to organize my thinking is come at it from a lot of points of view. And then because I'm writing a book that's about lots of, you know, incorporating multiple points of view, I think I was particularly aware that like, I want to just keep coming at the same idea and attack it from as many, maybe attack's not the right word, but uh, to to approach it from as many different angles as I could um, and really trying to find metaphors and stories that, that, you know, one could read and get sort of enter the work that way. And if you didn't enter it through Eratosthenes, maybe you entered it through, you know, the story about my dog. And maybe you entered it through Flatland. Um, So Flatland is the theme of an interlude early on in the book, and it's very Mm -hmm. much um, at the conceptual heart of a lot of what's happening here. So for listeners who may not have ever read Flatland, um, can you very briefly encapsulate what we need to understand about what's happening in that work in order to understand um, why it's so important to you uh, in the context of this work? Sure. Um, So Flatland just... For those who don't know, it's an 1880s Victorian uh, novel by uh, Edwin Abbott. And basically it's the story, and it's really a critique of Victorian society, um, uh, but it's uh, the story of these geometrical inhabitants of a two-dimensional world. And for me, uh, the, the concept I took out of it was, you know, these, these, these critters can move east and west and south and northwards, but they have no concept of upwards. They don't understand anything off their single plane of existence. And, you know, us three-dimensional creatures can sort of look down literally on them and say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. But it raises the question, you know, what is it, what is the upwards for you and I? What are the directions that we can't see, that we can't look to, that we don't even know, that we don't even know are around us because, you know, we're, we're living on this plane? Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's curious to me, this was, I, I think people will assume that Flatland sort of generated the title, um, and, and it's actually sort of backwards. I, the title came from thinking about how comics worked, um, and then thinking about Mercusa, who's in the first chapter, and then, I, I, because I knew of Flatland, I wanted to work it in, because it seemed so perfect. Um, and then, when it did get worked in, it became... Uh, became such a such a perfect metaphor, uh, you know, this idea of upwards that I repeated again with the dog and a few other times. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyhow, you're hearing meowing in the background. I think my cat's like, "Talk about the dog." Yeah, <laughs> talk about the dog. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not yet. there yet. Even though we like. So also early on in this book, um, and, and we'll sort of we'll follow this through, theme of flatness through in a moment. But just to mention for listeners, there are other touchstones um, that are juxtaposed with. Flatland um, and with these other um, uh, sort of points of inspiration that recur, and I'll just mention a couple of them, um, Calvino's Six Memos for the New Millennium and themes yeah. of kind of lightness and heaviness. Um, this actually comes up a lot, and we'll probably talk about that in a bit. Um, and also the work of Deleuze and Guattari um, specifically comes up in terms of their uh, use of the figure of the rhizome. And then you actually mentioned in the notes that their writing really lends itself to be presented in comics form. So I would, I would actually love to um, see more on that. Yeah. Yeah. So as we move um, into this and we'll, we'll keep um, Calvino with us and we'll keep Deleuze and Guattari with us and we'll keep the dog with us. We <laughs> move into the importance of seeing double and then some. So here in the second chapter, unflattening is what you call a simultaneous engagement of multiple flat vantage points from which to engender new ways of seeing. And here we meet um, Eratosthenes and his concept of the parallax. Um, And you talk about here imagining um, argument as a kind of dance, 
Right. Yeah. So here um, you invoke Lakoff and Johnson um, and say dueling partners, when you imagine argument as a dance, become collaborative partners. And collaboration seems to be a really important theme here, but also throughout the book. So can you talk about that? Um, sort of what's what's happening here with how you're seeing collaboration and um, how is this informing what's happening in this part of the book? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, this definitely comes out of my own sort of schooling. Um, I've got a lot of interdisciplinary degrees and which often don't mean a lot. Um, but they do, I have a hard time myself saying that this is the sort of theorist I follow, or this is a a field that I fit into. Um, and so, uh, this was very much an argument for, you know, the necessity of interdisciplinarity, which, you know, I was calling seeing double, and, and based on the very simple fact that, you know, our two eyes give us different pieces of information, but they got to get along. You know, if those, if those two things don't get along, you know, we can't catch a ball. We can't navigate a space. Um, so I think, you know, that quote there from Simeon Dreyfus on the dance page, you know, holding different ways of knowing in relationship, I think that's so, that's so key to how we can see beyond sort of straight on. Um, I think too, a part of this came out, uh, my, my sort of return to comics as an adult, uh, of sort of full on return came from doing some political comics. And, and I think part of that, the political comics were like, well, how do we sort of take in multiple views rather than being stuck to, you know, the party line or the, 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 you know, the one way that we've already agreed upon and how do we shake ourselves out of, out of, uh, you know, the ways of thinking we're already in what well, we need to, we need to bring in, you know, both eyes and, and that starts to shake us up. Why Eratosthenes? <laughs> uh, why Eratosthenes? Why not Eratosthenes? Yeah, um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm down with Eratosthenes, you know, you know but for yeah, you, for you, why why did that become? again? This comes from the personal. Um, this was uh, my, as we mentioned before, my dad's a physics teacher, and we had done this uh, in class, and it always had stuck with me. Um, you know, from a long time earlier, it stuck with me, and I think you know it was just in my notes, and as I played with the notes. Um, in sketching uh, the sort of diagram, and it's hard to see here, but the diagram, I mean, when we're talking, the diagram of sort of the earth with these two two points in it, uh, you know, sort of look like this eye that was open, which which is an image that shows up there. And then I start to use as an icon throughout the work and sort of end the book on it. Um, So I think some part that, that this thing, which seemed like, yeah, he's looking from two points and that should be important became a visual icon as well. And then it just seemed like, you know, uh, I mean, here, here was a time when, you know, some people maybe still thought the earth was flat and yet with some very simple calculations of, of, you know, the measurements of shadows a few hundred miles apart, this man was able to figure out the, you know, the distance around the earth quite accurately. Um, and I think that, that speaks so simply to the importance of, of seeing double, of, of having multiple perspectives. And one of those perspectives that come up, um, in this chapter is also the perspective of the dog. So maybe by explicitly invoking that, my cat will stop saying, where's the dog? Meow. Um, so do- you have a whole page devoted to the way dogs sense the world, right? And sort of bringing us into the multiplicity of kinds of perception so that it's not just visual. It can also be um, sensory in other ways. So smell comes up in one- on one page here. Right. So this page, it's, it's really fascinating to me. It was kind of meant to be a, a sort of an aside. Um, and I think I actually introduced it as an aside and uh, just almost as an apology to say, hey, look, I know I've been talking about literally talking about seeing and visual the whole time. But I really mean uh, ways of knowing, you know, by ways of seeing, I mean our ways of knowing, which can include all range of things. But because I'm talking about comics and I'm talking about visual thinking, this is what I'm, you know, for this, for my purposes, that's what I'm talking about. But metaphorically, I want it to extend to all the ways that learners make meaning. Um, And so, you know, the dog, I mean, you know, this was a very much true story. Like, you know, I think about how did we run through the dark and yet he knew how to navigate so well. Um, But then I get into sense of smell, which I don't think I'd thought about it this much. But in, 
but you know, the dog sense of smell is not only stronger than yours or mine, but it's nuanced in a way that, you know, the dog has, dog can come up to a tree and say, well, this is the critter that was on it an hour ago. And this is what was crawling here two hours ago and yesterday. And, you know, and here's the deer that lay there three days ago. The dog has those kind of layers of, of sensory experience that you and I walk up to the tree and we see, you know, we see the root structure or we see the, you know, the way the bark is, but we don't, we don't have access to that. And, and that in sort of thinking through that, I, I connected that back to the idea of upwards. The dog has a kind of upwards that we don't have. Um, and I think that's really important. And, and that, that became a much more salient point to the book to say, look, you know, as, as learners, we need to, we need to really think about the ways people make meaning and, and, uh, and validate and sort of cultivate them rather than saying, no, you have to do it this way. Right. So as we move through and we move from the dog and, um, I'm sure we're going to hear more about that from <laughs> my cat. So we might have to come back to the dog, but we'll sure. see what she has to say about that. We move into a chapter called The Shape of Our Thoughts here. Yeah. Um, you're talking, um, among many other things, <laughs> about language, about verbal language and visual language, image and text. And here, languages are both tools for exploration and also can be traps. So um, among other things, you're talking about the perceptive possibilities here afforded by text and by comics as a medium specifically. So there's some really interesting discussion here. Um, there are a couple of pages on talking about and naming comics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is really interesting. There's also a page or actually a couple of pages where you bring up or you sort of ask us to consider the fact that while image is, as you put it here, text is always about. And there's this really interesting page with a kind of a figure that's dancing and we'll come back to the dance and we'll come back to motion that works with the text of a number of poets as an image, right? And Mm -hmm. you talk in the notes about um, who some of those poets were, Sappho, Dorothy Wordsworth, Emily Dickinson, Sylvia Plath, Maya Angelou, Adrian Rich, etc. So what I um, would love to hear you talk a little bit more about for listeners is for you, um, this particular relationship between text and image, this sort of is versus about, and also why these particular poets at this moment in the text? Yeah. Well, uh, let me start with the second one because mm-hmm. I can answer that better. Um uh, you know, so the first chapter, this, you know, these flat figures, um, they're all male, uh, and they're all quite intentionally so. Um, I think I wrestled with it a little bit, but, but I really thought when I was talking about, uh, and, and this doesn't come up a lot, but, um, when I was talking about what flatness is, I was trying to say this is a very particular point of view, um, that, you know, people get molded into. And, um, and I thought there's some very obvious things that are left out in our culture or have been left out. So I wanted this page, this uh, 59, to to make a turn. Um, I mean, there are not a lot of figures in the book, period, but, but I'm at least not real figures. Um, but I wanted to make a turn and say, these are voices that have not been part of, have not been as fully a part of our discourse as they should have been. Um, and I, I think it's, it's probably, it's maybe too subtle. I don't know. Um, I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, but I wanted to make that turn and say, all right, from, you know, we need to include these voices and we need to see what happens in our, in our dialogue when that happens. Um, yeah. I think the subtlety actually works really well because it's, um, it's striking, right? And it's sort of, if you read the notes and, um, I hope listeners will all read the notes because there's amazing stuff happening in the notes. There's something about going back to this theme of juxtaposition and meaning being created through juxtaposition. The fact that you're naming all of these poets next to each other, um, it makes the reader ask, okay, what do they have in common? And you're immediately struck by the fact that they're all women. And then you go back to page 59 and, oh, look at this, you know, figure of the dancer as well. So it's subtle in a way that makes you work, which is good. Yeah. Um, so, I'm glad. And it, you know what's even more subtle is that most of the poems have the word rose in them. Oh, and there's which, a, uh, that's a kind of set it's up the next page. Ah, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so an image being um, is and text oh, yeah. being about, can you like t- open that up a little bit for us? Yeah, I don't know if I can talk about it. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, 
You know, I have this Baxendall quote there. Um, you know, it, it, once we're talking about a picture, we're already formulated in terms of text rather than the picture. And I, that's right. I, mean, um, I think yeah, this is a hard one to talk about um, just by its nature. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the image comes to us, and we read it, and we reread it, and we look through it, and and you know, a lot of this page is about the way we read images. You know, a text we we start at the top and we move our way down, and an image. You know, you sort of dance from what draws your eye to what draws your eye, and you keep making different juxtapositions and, and discovering different relationships from the whole to the part and back again. Um, and, and I'm sure I think it's an overstatement to say text doesn't do that. Um, I think, but it does it in a in a very it, that those processes have to take place in your head. I think, um, whereas in an image, you, you know, we we keep moving our eyes around it and discovering new things. Um, not sure that really answers your question. No, it, it actually, it does. And it really, I think also nicely brings us into another really interesting thing that's happening around this part of the book, which has to do with text and has to do with text and image. And this is page 54, right? This Mm. chapter actually has the only page Mm -hmm. of like text as text. Yes. Right, in the book, and you talk in the notes about your experience with the dissertation um, being required to have a list of figures solely for this page, right? Of it, which is really interesting and ironic and kind of hilarious. And I would love to hear a little bit more about your feelings about this page um, and the kind of work that this page does. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a riot what happened. I mean, like I said, I had very little pushback, but this particular page um, was kind of fun. So, so the page before 53, you know, the, the figure there is very, is turning and looking at us. Um, and I, and I'm talking about, you know, kind of how we're doing comics, image and text dancing back and forth between them. And I say at the bottom of it, it's not always done this way. And then we turn the page and we're, you know, we're in this page of all text. And it's, it's at least mostly supposed to look like dissertations. Look, it is 12 point type. It is double spaced. Um, in the dissertation version, the margins are shifted in the book version. Um, but in the dissertation, it is one and a half by one by one by one margins. Um, and what was really fascinating, and I, I don't really want to pick on the Office of Doctoral Studies, but um, <laughs> no, 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 it's all, it's all in, it's all with love and affection. Right? That's right. Um, you know, so I, I submitted. You submit this document for them to check your citations and your, you know, margins and all those things that they check. And this hundred and thirty, I'm not sure exactly how many drawn pages there were, but um. This thing came back and it had comments on exactly one page and it was this page, this page that's, you know, talking about the, it's directly talking about the um, sort of bias against images. Um, and it has this figure in it, this object bent in water, fig, labeled figure one. And, and the feedback came back and said, well, on page, on this page, you have a figure and you have no list of figures at the beginning. So you need to have a list of figures um, that points to that page. And I'm, I, yeah, I, I remember sort of reading that and like looking at the, and like going back and forth for a while thinking, this is clearly a joke. Um, but I, I, I now I'm sure, certain it wasn't. And I felt like, wow, this made, you know, because here was this point where I turned to the reader and said, you know, why, why are we stuck in these conventions? It's not to say the text isn't good or anything. It's to say, why is this the way it is? And here, this Office of Doctoral Studies, without knowing it, I don't think, reinforced my point by having me insert this ridiculous list of figures that points to this page with the least amount of images it, on the entire book. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's brilliant and I'm so pleased they did it. <laughs> it's actually perfect for it's this perfect. part of the book too, right? I mean, because one of the things you're talking about um, in this chapter is that the relationship of components, right? what things are next to, what they're not next to matters to meaning. Right. And this sort of is part of a conversation um, in this chapter about sequence and comics. And so having that um, in between and sort of next to and coming before and after what it you know comes from reminds us what we're not doing, right? When reading the right. book, which is um, which helps us understand, I think, even more viscerally what we are doing um, when we are working through the book with you. So 
as we move from here um, into the next chapter, we move into a chapter that really um, emblematizes a concern that, again, comes up throughout the book, but here it's really front and center. And this is a concern with motion and with the productive and creative and imaginative possibilities of motion. So we've already talked about dance um, and sort of dance as a way to think about uh, sort of meaning making together and seeing together here um, in our bodies in motion, you really are putting this at the center of our inquiry. So um, walking and moving wind up being really central to what comes after this. And here we have animal tracks. Um, we have sort of um, you know moving bodies creating form. We have all kinds of ways of calling out the importance of movement. So I would just like to open this out um, to ask you to talk a little bit about that. Um, for you, thinking about motion and movement, walking and dancing and um, moving throughout the book, in what ways is that important to how you're thinking about the overall contributions and themes of the book? Wow, that's fascinating. I don't think anyone's brought that out, and I don't know that I've thought about it as much as you just said. Um, <laughs> that's really terrific. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, this was, and I think on 79 where we show the thinker, uh, the thinker as sort of our image of what thinking is, is this static person, um, you know, not moving, and it's all happening in our head. And um, I think my, my goal here was more to talk about drawing than movement, though I think like with the dog, I want to say that these are larger metaphors, um, is that, yes, we do, you know, we think you know, we're having a conversation, you know, we're thinking with our hands. That's all part of how, we, how we're figuring it. You know, it's not only like a motion we do to explain things. It's also when you try to come up with a word that means something, I think we, at least I do, I know I'm like... You know, I'm trying to shape my hands in the way that feels like that word. Um, I think our, you know, I, I think the sort of Descartes in, uh, dilemma or whatever is that we sort of divorced that way of moving the kinesthetics. Um, and then specifically, I'm talking about drawing where, you know, when I make a mark, when my arm moves across a paper, it, my visual system is now part of is now part of the thinking process. Um, rather than keeping it all in my head, I now get to use my eyesight, which does you know all these amazing calculations all all the time, to interact with the work. And you know, I mean, I think we can talk about it kinesthetically, and we can talk about it drawing drawing wise, and, and more. So even thank you very much for that. And it sort of it also kind of really nicely sets up a path for us to move through the rest of the book, I think, because kinesthetics and movement and walking is very much a feature of one of the superheroes actually that comes up in the next <laughs> chapter. And this is Locker Man. Okay. So this is a chapter called The Fifth Dimension um, that's really focusing on storytelling and stories. And here you're defining stories kind of broadly as the framing of experience to give it meaning. We, um, you talk here on one page, page 95, about Scheherazade and Copernicus and really kind of juxtaposing these very different kinds of storytellers, but all storytellers in a way, as um, a way to get us to think about the centrality of narrative and storytelling to, as you call it, to pivot our viewpoint or change the way we see. So one of the figures that comes up here, in addition to Scheherazade and Copernicus, is Locker Man. Now, this is a superhero you created when you were 13, as you tell us here. Um, and one of the reasons I'm bringing him up now, aside from the fact that he just seems awesome, is that <laughs> his superpower was also based on motion, right? It was based on movement. He could step through any door and come out anywhere. So can you tell us a little bit more about Locker Man? Um, just kind of whatever you think is most important <laughs> right now in terms of, you know, kind of like the conversation about the book. Yeah. Um, well, I just, his origin is, it really was a parody. It was sort of a parody thing. I had a, when you're in eighth grade, you have a locker partner. So I, I made up this character that could go on our the door of our locker. But then it, in making this very simple thing about it, all of a sudden I had all these ideas for stories. So I made, I mean, it really, you know, it was just a simple idea for me that then opened a door to doing lots and lots of, of stories with him to sort of explore ideas. Um, and I think that in sort of looking back at that became a really central metaphor to the importance of stories. You know, you don't, when you start in one, it starts to open up spaces. And, um, I think for myself, 
I, you know, I, as I talk about in here, the, the sort of magic of a cupboard that you don't know where that door goes to or the attic door or, you know, things from Alice in Wonderland or the Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. Um, you know, there's this sort of mystery behind a door um, that in step crossing that threshold, what happens? What, where, you know, where are we transported to? Um, and... Uh, you know, Lockerman certainly, I, I don't think I thought about his origins that way, but, um, but he's certainly that way. And I think stories have that power for us to sort of take us to another place. And you talk about our superpower um, here in this hmm. um, fifth dimension um, being the capacity to host a multiplicity of worlds inside us. And I think that's, um, that's just beautiful. Yeah. So here also we meet in this chapter, um, or we re-meet, we met him um, by seeing a pair of shoes a little bit earlier on, we meet Hermes the messenger. Yes. Um, and so can you talk about him? Um, what's for you, what's um, central and what's important about this figure in terms of the work you're doing here? Yeah, um, I mean, right, he gives Perseus the shoes that we have this Calvino quote early on. And I think, you know, I mean, I think I say in here that, that he is the person who presides over communication and boundaries. Um, I thought so much of this work was, you know, in addition to stories, it was about how we cross boundaries, whether it's crossing disciplines, whether it's crossing academic and public, and whether it's, you know, these doors that you go through, um, or, or, you know, that, that it was really very much about boundaries, boundary crossing, and, and very much about what happens in the boundaries. I mean, I think a big argument for the importance of interdisciplinarity in today is that, you know, the interesting work tends to come out on these fringes between things. Um, and I think in some way, you know, the, that this figure, this mythological figure, uh, seemed like a good person to be a guide um, because that was the role that he had. And the fact that he'd already shown up with Perseus made it all the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. This is actually, it's, uh, you know, I, I think in my notes, I expected that he would play a larger role in the work. Um, uh, I think the concept plays a large role, but the, the character only, only really appears once. So, you mentioned boundaries, right? And you mentioned sort of the importance of, um, or the, the interesting things that happen between things. And this really, I think, nicely brings us into um, another figure in the, in actually a couple of different chapters that motivates um, what I think is a pretty important point in the book. And this is the figure of the puppet. Mm-hmm. So in Strings Attached, um, you introduce this puppet who, you know, it wakes up, goes to work, is very much part of this, um, or is very much Im- embedded in this routine. And the chapter takes us through what happens when there's a kind of kink in the works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is also a reference to Alice in Wonderland. We've got this wonderful caterpillar. At least for me, it was like a visual reference to Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, oh, it is. So can you talk about this puppet and for you, the importance of this puppet and the, the kind of the strings of this puppet? What do you, what's important for you in terms of the larger work um, that these couple of chapters that he's in um, is doing? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one, it never became a chapter title, but I thought it would be, but the idea of animating, the idea of, of or reanimating, taking something, you know, that sort of lost its spark and bringing it back. Um, I think that came up, uh, well, in my notes, it came up, I, you know, I thought of things like Frankenstein and I very much thought, and it, just, it didn't appear, the Velveteen Rabbit, this, this mm-hmm. thing that's, that wants to be real and Pinocchio obviously is that thing. And so I thought in some sense, this puppet was another way of looking at our flatlanders or sleepwalkers, um, that, you know, sort of are pulled along on their strings, but aren't necessarily, you know, aren't aware of them. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it became another stand in for those, for our flatlanders or the sleepwalkers at the beginning. Um, and, but, a, but a sort of playful way, I, you know, a playful way, both in the fact that it's Pinocchio and the way it's drawn and it introduced the hungry caterpillar and the Alice in Wonderland caterpillar. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, not at all. I mean, it actually becomes in the next chapter in vectors really interestingly, um, a way to think about possibility. And this is really, I think, important is that you're not just saying, look, um, we're all essentially puppets that are being, 
that are attached to larger structures that we make and that in turn make us, uh, and we're attached by strings, but also we can start to see those strings that attach us to structures not as constraints, but as, as you put it in the vectors chapter, forces to harness. Yeah. There's this really beautiful juxtaposition of this sort of the idea and the imagery of um, sort of the, the puppet starting to harness, um, you know, starting to really become empowered and manipulate the strings itself with these images of navigation, right? Sea navigation by becoming in tuned or tuned with the kind of embodied vectors that one can feel if you start to see and perceive in a certain way um, in the ocean and in the surrounding environment. So vectors actually become really, really important here as well. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I want to kind of make sure we get to, because this is really, really important, is what's happening in the chapter before the puppet okay. and the chapter after the vectors. And this is something that I think picks up on something we've already been talking about, motion, movement, kinetics. And here um, in ruts, right, you talk mm-hmm. about walking. Um, now, this is really, really interesting um, because you give us a way of thinking about something and imaging something that's as kind of routine and mind deadening as a daily commute. Mm-hmm. Right. And you give us these maps and you put it, um, sort of, there are actually six daily commutes mapped by your wife, as you talk about, right, on page um, or in this chapter, um, as a way to think about how to vary. Even that which we may take for granted as the most kind of deadening in a way that opens up the kind of creative possibilities of the walk as a journey. So could you talk a little bit about walking? Um, There's sort of these maps of the commute and what you take to be some of the most interesting stuff going on um, in this chapter that's devoted to ruts and to walking. Yeah, um, I'll go backwards a little bit on that. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I mean, one thing the the ruts idea. I, I just remember running in uh, uh, in an island in Manhattan um, and seeing after the rain, just like you know, the ruts growing and growing. And I thought it was such a there's so much a, a strong metaphor for you know, as our society goes, we dig deeper ruts. And, and um, so I really like the visual of it. Um, in terms of that page, uh, 112 about my wife's commute, um, I was thinking about the idea of commuting. Um, you know, this, this was in the notes from early on, like, you know, that, that sort of, you know, we dig a rut because we go back and forth the same way every day. Um, but I, I know we were, she and I were talking about it, uh, walking around Manhattan. And I was thinking how little, my commute wasn't quite as routine as the one I depicted here, but, um, but I didn't go, I didn't go a lot of places in Manhattan. And as a result, I feel like there were things that were two blocks away from each other that I knew independently, but had no idea that they were connected. Um, and so, whereas because of her sort of variegated route daily, um, she had a very different understanding of how things were connected than I did. Um, and that just that really struck me, and I thought it was such a good example to 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 bring to life here. Um, I mean, so these are real mappings of her commute. Um, you know, it's not fictional. Um, that you know, in, in that way that she her routine or was not routine, <laughs> um, but in the way that it sort of moved her in different ways across the city, she saw differently than someone who went the same way or went the same three ways every day. The the city had a much greater dimensionality to it. Um, And I think that, you know, coming back to the importance of seeing double, um, you you know, seeing connections rather than seeing divisions. And it it really changes one's view. Um, And I was, I was always struck by the, the, uh, situationist internationals derive this sort of drift a way of making a walk a playful thing um, and and I think it's so simple you know that that one time that you you know you're walking and you hear a sound and so you turn right instead of left and you see this this street that you've never walked down and it's always there and you just never go down 118th because you always go down 117th um, that you know how do we sort of playfully or intentionally open up those ways and start to see different things. Um, yeah. 
So one of the really brilliant things that's happening in this chapter um, is the way that, again, at least for me, this, the images, right, the, the sort of imaging here is doing a lot of meaning making and is doing a lot of work. And so we've been talking about the images. We've been talking about the sort of conceptual or some of the conceptual contributions that the chapters are making. But here um, on page 112, and listeners um, who I hope will all get a copy of the <laughs> book, right? On two. Page one, two, or two copies of the book, right? Um, on page 112, you have these maps, right, these commuting maps yeah. um, of Manhattan, that is. Yeah. So the map, the shape of Manhattan, if you go back to early in this chapter, so 102 and 103, to this imaging of um, rain making puddles, right? And these puddles growing, and this sort of just speaks to what you were talking about in terms of ruts, right? Mm -hmm. The shape of the puddles is very resonant with the shape of Manhattan, which is also very resonant with like another figure that comes up in this chapter, which is a foot. That's... True. It, right? I mean, I think it's <laughs> I didn't <laughs> thinking of like juxtaposition, right? And the ways that just kind of having these, um, I think, images kind of proximate to one another. And then you have rain right after this page of Manhattan. So it reminds us, oh, yeah, it was raining at the beginning of the chapter. You can kind of go back to that and see um, the sort of the, the ways that these images echo each other. Um, so feet, right? I'm, so this is something that's an extraordinarily important image throughout the book. And I've saved it for the end because um, we haven't talked about it yet. But we need to get to this. And I think it's a really nice way to sort of come to the sort of last part of our conversation. We've talked about walking, um, but we haven't actually talked much about the objects that are doing the walking, which is the feet. Um, now, in this, in the chapter Awakening, right, which is the last chapter of the book, um, you explicitly focus, it, focus on uh, the figure of feet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about the size of feet, comparison of feet, difficulty in finding shoes that fit. And this reminds us, as we have a space here to focus on this, that feet have actually been with us um, all the way through the book. And here we're finally um, you know, given a moment to kind of sit down and really think about what that means. So let's talk about feet feet. Um, so for you, I'm just going to kind of hit this back to you and maybe ask you a couple of questions. For you, what's important um, about the image of a foot and feet, both in terms of what's happening um, in this chapter and throughout the book? So I'll just kind of leave that. I'll, I'll hit that back to you and then we can kind of talk about this a little bit more. Yeah. Well, historically, it's something I don't draw very well. So I think it's... <laughs> My brother used to pick on me for that. Um, so I, you know, no, that's, that's not really why, but, um, I think that this is one of the things that actually came really early, um, was my own trouble getting shoes that fit and, and how, you know, like if we take a, the sort of silhouette of our foot, which I did here, um, you know, my 10 and a half silhouette is not the same as somebody else's yet. We're both expected to fit into the same shoe. And, and, and so, you know, very simply, if your feet aren't doing, if your feet aren't able to walk comfortably, um, you, you can't, you can't get around that well. And I think, you know, as a metaphor, like if our feet are that different, if we start to look at the ways of our learning, they got to be even more vastly different. Um, so that, that's sort of where I was headed all the time. As, as far as, uh, you know, I, I think I very intentionally seeded these images of feet from the beginning on, um, though the baby feet were, that was, that was not seat that didn't know that was coming. Um, I was hoping that was coming, but I didn't know it was coming. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's something I was very conscious of the whole time is that there would be little images that would keep recurring and recurring and, and build up to something. Um, and, and the way, I mean, I think you said it a minute ago, uh, you know, we, even if, if you don't consciously make that connection, like talking about the rain or the, uh, because it's visual, it's in your mind as you read this. Um, and so these images of feet and the feet turning into, or the raindrops turning into feet in the chapter six, um, I, I feel like the, I don't know exactly the right word, but our visual memory is, is very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm, I'm really hoping that I took advantage of that to, uh, and probably took advantage of it in ways that I don't know because people, I mean, you made, you suggested a few visual connections I hadn't thought of. Um, 
yeah. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure I answered that very well. No, you did. You totally did. And I'll mention, um, we've been talking about the baby feet for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to take a look at the book. Um, the baby feet are on the dedication page. Um, right. So take a look at the baby feet there. So you actually talk in the notes about how you acquired um, the outlines of the feet, right, that come up in this uh, chapter, Awaking. Can you talk a little bit about that? This was um, something that you broadcast on social media, right? And you basically got this um, archive of outlines of feet as a result. So what, what was happening there? Yeah, that was fantastic. I mean, I had the idea for a long time, um, but it's not. So I blogged this. I blogged the first half of my dissertation, which apparently is also something people don't normally do. Um, but like with many of these things, I just didn't know better. So I was doing it. So as a result, I'd acquired at least, you know, some, uh, some audience to have conversations with about the work. Um, and so as I got closer to, to doing the thing with, with feet, I thought, well, shoot, you know, I mean, I can, you know, I'm talking about collaboration. I'm talking about the importance of public and academic, you know, uh, why don't I, why don't I leverage that and have people, you know, literally put their foot in my dissertation. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote up a, I wrote up a call for it and I put it on my site and I put it on social media stuff and I got feet from around the world, which was really cool. Um, and the, the instructions were, um, you know, this was not a real serious IRB issue. Um, but I, I did instruct everyone to, you know, send me the, uh, a, a, uh, scan of a tracing of their feet that with no information on it besides the size, uh, you know, male, female size and left and right. And, um, and I got these feet and then I retraced them to make it a little cleaner for the book, but essentially, um, these are all real feet. And I, I think the metaphor would have worked if I had just told you it, but I think it works so much better when you know that these are real feet in the book and real feet on the cover as well. Absolutely. I, I really love that moment. Um, and, and thank you for also telling us about that in the notes, because I think it's a really important um, example of something that we've been talking about throughout the conversation, which is, at least for me, right, as a reader, the way that the shape of the book, the work that the book does really embodies the kind of conceptual work that you're talking about. So again, I mean, we come back to the theme that we mentioned at the very beginning as we kind of come full circle here is the way to sort of move from just thinking and seeing and working where we're talking about something to really making and doing it. And this is something that I think the book um, does, again, extraordinarily compellingly and is really a model and an inspiration for what might come next for, for others who read the book and get inspired to perhaps explore their own similar projects. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And I th I'll just say one thing about the feet. And, you know, I, I did know I was going to get all these feet, but I had no idea what I was going to do with them <laughs> um, visually or I just didn't know. I mean, I knew the, the comparison with my own feet that, that was set, but, um, but I think that's, that's an important thing about work is to, or creative work and critical work is to sort of embrace that, you know, ideas come in, information comes in and then you let it guide you rather than saying, this is how it fits. Um, I think that spoke, that sort of speaks to what I'm talking about with the feet in particular too. Absolutely. And I'll just, um, as we kind of come to our conclusion here, because I think that's yeah. a really nice place to um, to start wrapping up, I'll also mention in the spirit of making and in the spirit of drawing our attention and our imaginations to the importance of making, there's also, um, in addition to a bibliography and uh, some visual notes or notes on the images at the end of the book, you also have included an idea map um, and some working roadmaps at the end of it. So we're really um, able to, as before we close, close this other cover of the book, we're really able to come to a point where we can start seeing um, literally, right, the process of making um, that went into the book itself. And thank you for including that because it's a really inspiring note to end on um, as we're closing the book. Yeah. I <laughs> Yeah, go on, please. No, I thought that was, I mean, it was important to me because I like seeing process, but I also think... Uh, you know, I mean, I think to people who are not artists or people who are not musicians or whatever this thing is, um, I think it looks like magic. You see finished artwork and you say, wow, that's just something that a, you know, a magician can do. <laughs> um, but I think seeing the sort of messiness and the way that 
the person thinks through to get to build these things up. I think it's really important, you know, to let them in on it and say, you know what, um, you know, this is something you can do as well. Um, so it was really important for me to show process um, to, to hopefully, you know, let people in on it both to understand what I did, but to maybe start thinking about what they could do. Um, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So Nick, we're at the end of our time and there's a million billion things <laughs> that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? Is there anything in particular that you'd like to put on the table for listeners um, before we close up that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Yeah. I th- um, boy, there's a bunch of them that I started to note down, but the Scheherazade page, which you brought up, mm-hmm. um, I think is a really, this, this page, uh, the simple description of it, 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 it sort of zooms in on different scenes in the sort of way that Scheherazade's stories were stories within stories. Um, and the page was supposed to be this, this idea that stories open up spaces for us. Um, but I wanted to say in the midst of it that by stories, I didn't just mean the fanciful, but I meant things like science, which we've talked about. Um, and, and I think it's, it, had I been writing uh, without image, um, I would have just stopped and said, I mean things by science. But because I was working in visual medium and I had this aesthetic constraint about how I wanted the page to move and each image to resonate with the image before, um, I had to find something from science that spoke to it. And and that pro- pushed me to discover this, uh, this thing coming out of the uh, Arab Golden Age, these discoveries that Copernicus later used to make his big leap. And I'd had the Copernicus page before. So I, I think, I mean, there's a lot more I could say about it, but I think what was really exciting to me about it is that the the art and the sort of aesthetic decisions forced me to do research that I wouldn't have done. There was no reason to do it in any other for any other reason. But I made discoveries because I I was uh, in this process where I included a lot of modes of thinking, um, and I think that's sort of emblematic of what I want the book to do. Is like you know when you bring these things in, you start to make discoveries that you would have been blind to and that you would never have thought to look for if you hadn't. Perfect. So, Nick, now that the book is out, and congratulations again, I think it's clear that it's an amazing book. What's next for you? What are you currently working on that's inspiring you? Um, yeah, that's, that's a fine question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm doing, a, I, I have goals to do more things not along the lines of this theme necessarily, but I think more things that that help people think about how they can make their own work and make drawing. I mean, I, I teach courses on comics and education and, um, and I, the courses are grounded in having them make, even though they tend to not be art students. Um, I think it's really important. You know, I, I think visual literacy and the ability to draw is such a, an important thing for us to do um, that I'd, I'd like to sort of find ways to do that through my own comics making, which I hit on a little bit here, but it's something I think I'd like to do with more at length. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also done, I did a piece in the Boston Globe a couple weeks ago that takes some of these ideas um, in a different form, but I, but I have some ideas for further pieces uh, that really... Uh, you know, that come at things from different, you know, we take science and take mathematics and take things that maybe people aren't so, you know, that we're not as comfortable with, but, but give people access to them and not by dumbing them. I'm never interested in dumbing down, but really on trying to bring the reader up to say, Hey, this is stuff you can get if you just have the vocabulary to get it or the, or the means to get at it. Uh, if that makes sense. Well, Nick, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. And again, congratulations and best of luck um, with your work moving forward. Yeah, thank you so much. That was a real pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books Network seminar. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.